And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, our Lord Jesus, it is a formidable challenge to carry out your command to forgive. And yet you have left us such an example and given us such great grace that we know that what you command of us, you would surely grant to us. So we ask you this morning, would you use your word to give us the unshakable conviction that we must, and with your help, we will forgive even those who hurt us the most. Uh, Jesus, help us to hear your words, not as cold and callous, but as those coming from your warm, loving heart. Speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a challenging thing to forgive those who have hurt you greatly. A man named Sokrasa learned that. Back in the 1970s, he was living in his village in Cambodia with his family when the unthinkable happened. The communist Khmer Rouge sent a death squad to their house. Uh, he lived through a horrible trauma. He watched all of his loved ones killed before his eyes. And if they had had their way, he would have died with them. They left him for dead in the blood and gore. But somehow, Sokrasa survived, and he emerged from that pit with a mission, one that consumed his heart, revenge. Uh, he spent all his days plotting the way he would find those men who hurt him so and hurt them back. But every time he tried, it seemed like something conspired against him, and he was unable to carry out his mission. Uh, the years went by, and Sokrasa immigrated to Canada. And a strange thing happened indeed. He got invited to a church, and he heard the gospel of Jesus preached, and he became a Christian. For a time, it seemed like his life was getting a lot better. He had a sense of peace and joy. That is until he realized that his new faith in Jesus had a requirement laid on him, that as he had been forgiven, he also must forgive. So five years after he had become a Christian, he found himself on his knees, crying out to God, saying, God, I know I have to forgive them, but I can't do it. It's a challenging thing when you realize that you are called to forgive, even those who have hurt us greatly. Uh, so, so Chrysal was not the first Christian to have discovered this. 
It's one of the most challenging teachings that Jesus has ever given. And yet he knows that our hearts need that medicine, which is why he took the time to teach this lesson to his disciples 2,000 years ago while they were on the road to Jerusalem. He gave them challenging words, but words that will help heal our wounded hearts. Words that lead us on the path truly following after Jesus, the one who forgives at the cost of his own blood. Uh, This morning, we'll see Jesus giving this hard teaching, and we'll find it's not an impossibility for us to forgive. Here's your main point this morning. With God's help, even your small faith can forgive. With God's help, even your small faith is enough to forgive. Uh, We'll see that in three sections as Jesus teaches his disciples, and that includes us, the costly command of forgiveness. I'll give you those three points up front. Uh, First, in verses one through two, we'll see uh, the terrible cost of setting up stumbling stones. The terrible cost setting up stumbling stones. Second and three through four, we'll see the formidable command to forgive sinners. The formidable command to forgive sinners. And then finally, we'll see the indispensable cry, the indispensable prayer for faith to forgive. The indispensable prayer for faith to forgive. All right, let's begin in that first section, the terrible cost of setting up stumbling stones. Uh, Jesus, right from the beginning, in this teaching to his disciples, sets off a warning. There is a blaring alarm. Pay attention. Uh, You can see it there at the very first part of verse 3. It's really part of those first two verses. The way it's broken up is a little deceiving. Pay attention to yourselves. Well, what is it that has Jesus so worked up? Well, it's the potential for uh, people to be stumbling over spiritual stones. Uh, You see that at the beginning of verse 1. He says, temptations to sin are sure to come. Uh, There's a footnote on that phrase, temptations to sin, and if you have the ESV, uh, because the Greek underneath it is actually a word picture. It's of a stumbling block, uh, something that's laid off left carelessly in the middle of a road that causes a traveler walking along their way to trip and fall. Uh, When I was about five years old, I was playing in a parking lot that was under construction, and the ball went flying away from my friends off into a part of the parking lot that was unfinished. And so I went running off happily to catch it. But of course, along the way, my foot slipped on a stone, and I went face first into a pile of rocks. It was a very bloody, traumatic experience for the little five-year-old Tommy to trip and fall because of a stone that caused me to stumble. Well, according to Jesus, there are stones littered across the road of discipleship as we seek to follow after him. He says it's inevitable. You're going to come across occasions that are have the potential to trip you up. Uh, Those occasions can be varied and different in many ways. It can be someone saying an unkind word to you 
They could be the example of someone that leads you astray. They could be a particular teaching that gets a false idea in your head and you start acting upon it. According to Jesus, the Christian life is filled with lots and lots of opportunities to slip and trip and fall down spiritually. Now, in one sense, this is comforting uh, because it means that when we encounter these spiritual stumbling blocks in our own life, it's not as if something unusual is happening to us. According to Jesus, this is normal Christianity. They are sure to come. That doesn't excuse us for our sins when we slip and fall spiritually. But it does mean that this is to be expected. Jesus warns us, pay pay attention to where you're placing your feet as you walk after me on your road of discipleship. But as important as all that is, actually that is not the main point of what Jesus is talking about here. He's not mainly warning us against slipping over stones ourselves. He's warning us about something far worse. Uh, That is being the one that sets up the occasion for someone else to stumble. He says temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. According to Jesus, sin is really bad. But you know what's worse? Causing someone else to sin because you set them up for it. Uh, Jesus doesn't mince words about this. Uh, In verse 2, he uses a a graphic picture that's hard to really wrap our heads around the terror of it. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. If you were living in the ancient world, you would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. Um, There were these gigantic round stones that were used for breaking apart the grain. Uh, These stones would be laid on top of each other. The grain would be poured in a hole in the middle. And then a beast of burden would be used to turn the stones to grind the grain. Uh, Beasts of burdens were necessary because these stones were so heavy, there's no chance an individual person could move them, much less pick them up. But Jesus says that causing others to spiritually stumble is so bad. Uh, Well, you might as well tie one of those stones around and throw yourself in the ocean, leading to an undoubtedly watery grave, because it's better than the alternative. Now, whatever Jesus is describing there that's even worse than a watery grave, whatever it is, it's supposed to be a grave, grave judgment from God. See, God takes sin seriously. All aspects of sin. The sin we unknowingly stumble into and the sins we set other people up to commit. According to Jesus, there is some sort of terrible proportionality in hell for all of us who have left obstacles that cause others to stumble in their walk with Christ. Now, I do have to point out that Jesus mentions here the people that are led into this sin. He describes them as little ones. And there's been many people who have interpreted this verse, particularly to talk about the heinous sin of somehow causing children to stumble. Now, again, Jesus 
takes sin more seriously than anyone. He cares for all of the children. However, I don't think that is what he's talking about specifically here. Um, In the Gospels, often he refers to his disciples as little ones or children. Uh, It's actually a picture of his care for us. So as you look at your dear son or daughter or a niece or nephew or a granddaughter, an innocent child, and you think of your heart's compassion for them and your desire to protect them from anything would harm them, you're right to think, uh, Jesus has even more compassion for me. And woe to anyone who would cause me or any other disciple of Jesus to slip and trip into sin. Now, I think the main application for this undoubtedly comes heaviest upon the weight of those who are given leadership in the people of God. Uh, Passages like James 3 show that there is greater weight given to to those like what I'm doing right now, who speak authoritative words as pastors or elders or teachers. And as a result, there'll be greater weight in judgment for the consequences of those words. Because when we use the positions of authority that God gives us to cause harm, instead of to do good, the consequences are all the more terrible indeed. A few years ago, I heard a sermon from, uh, a clip from it that went viral. In it, a pastor made some comments that would have been out of line even if they were spoken in an empty room. Uh, There were comments that were unbelievably misogynistic and uncaring. Now, the horrible thing, it was not said in an empty room. It was said full of a full church, including dear sisters in Christ, who I don't know how they could not have been gravely offended by his words, rightfully so. You know, as bad as it was that he even said those things, uh, the reaction to it was almost predictable. I, I saw messages of people saying things like, well, that's why I want nothing to do with Christianity. Uh, That's exactly why I left the church, and I'm never going back. Uh, There's a a great cost, a terrible cost. When we set up people to slip and trip and fall into all sorts of sins, undoubtedly the greatest weight of that is meant to fall on teachers and leaders. So we must be very careful what we say. I must confess, I pray a lot about what words I will or won't say on any given Sunday. I invite you to pray for me that the Lord would help me not to say things, even unintentionally, that lead others to slip and fall in their soul. Now, of course, it's not just leaders and teachers that can cause people to slip and trip. We all have the ability to do that. And Jesus' warning is intended for every type of disciple. All right, think about how you can set someone up to slip and fall in their soul with just a few words. Uh, Maybe you get a bit of juicy gossip. Did you hear? He lost his job. And I heard they're up to their eyeballs in debt. Oh, of course, I knew it. I mean, do you see how often they have new clothes they wear? And that car he's driving, I bet they can barely even keep up with the payments. All it took was one little juicy bit of gossip 
And then a whole cascade of uncharitable assumptions just tumble out. Uh, it's not just gossip, of course. Someone comes to you sincerely asking you to forgive them in repentance. What happens when you respond with anger or harshness? Might that discourage them from doing what they should do and repenting in the future? Uh, what about when you speak lightly of sin? Oh, it's no big deal. Don't you encourage others to engage in that very thing? Or to think lightly of all the other sins that they might be tempted by? Or what about the times where we set an example by visibly sinning ourselves? Inevitably, somebody's going to notice, and we cause them to slip and trip and fall down in their souls. Uh, Jesus warns us to watch ourselves. And praise be to God, there is forgiveness even for those who have caused others to slip and trip through our attitude, our actions, and our examples. But the key thing that Jesus wants us to hear this morning is that we are to watch and to stop dropping those spiritual stones as far as it depends on us. Well, that's hard enough already, but Jesus is going to up the ante. What comes next is not what happens when you cause someone else to sin, but how you are to respond when they sin against you. And that's what we see in verses 3 and 4. The formidable command to forgive sinners. Uh, there's that saying, time heals all wounds. The longer I've been a pastor, the more I don't think that's true. Uh, yes, it is true that there's an initial shock when you are hurt, particularly when someone sins against you. Once that shock wears off, things are less intense for a time. However, if we do not deal with the hurt and the wound, and if we allow a grudge to set in, well, pretty soon we find our hearts being poisoned by bitterness. Now, that's what happened to Socrates. Uh, he allowed his pain and his anguish to be nursed into a horrible grudge and desire for revenge. And by the time he met Jesus, his soul was filled with bitterness by his own words. Uh, Jesus knows that this is the reality. And he knows that our own hearts and our relationships they need the medicine of forgiveness to avoid that dark fate, which is why he tells us that we need to forgive with three commands that all fit together. Uh, the first command is to rebuke your brother. You see that in verse three? If your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke is a word of correction. It can be a harsh rebuke or it can be a soft one. Uh, rebuke is pointing out someone's faults in the hopes that they see the error of their ways and that respond with repentance. Now, it's easier said than done. Someone sins against you, you have to rebuke them. Uh, but frankly, most of us err one of two directions when it comes to rebuking someone that has harmed us. Uh, either we err on the side of never rebuking, we just try to pretend it didn't happen, move on with life, we excuse it, or at least we think we do, when in fact it's festering beneath the surface the entire time. 
Even worse, we don't even give them the chance to mend their ways and point out what they've done so they might repent. Uh, There's another ditch, and that is to be overzealous in our rebukes. Some of us have the tendency to notice every little infraction in others, no matter how insignificant it might seem. We get charged up with the opportunity to bring a corrective word. More often than not, those words are less than gentle. We can cause more than a little bit of harm with harsh corrective rebukes. Now, Jesus, of course, doesn't want either of these. And in his life, he perfectly modeled for us both taking sin very seriously and having a heart of mercy. Yes, even toward those whom he gave words of rebuke. And he intends for us, for the love of each other and more, more than anything, out of the love of God, to practice the same sort of balanced rebuke. I'll just give a little bit of advice at this point about trying to engage in a corrective word towards someone. It's very rare to be able to give a good rebuke, good balanced, loving one, when you are acting on emotion and in the heat of the moment. Uh, Usually it requires prayer, thinking carefully about your words, and yes, quite a bit of dying to self to be able to do the right thing, the courageous thing, and the loving thing, and that is to point out to someone the error of their ways. So don't just rush headlong into trying to correct everyone you see, and don't turn a blind eye to sin. Now, we as a church have invited each other to point out when we have erred in the hopes that we might repent. There's a second command Jesus gives that goes along with it, and that is to forgive your brother. You rebuke in the hopes that he might repent and that you would have the opportunity to forgive. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, undoubtedly, this is the ideal scenario Jesus is laying out. Uh, Someone sins, you point it out through a rebuke, they respond by repenting and asking for forgiveness, and you joyfully grant that forgiveness, and the relationship is restored. Uh, That's the ideal, but frankly, it's easier said than done in most cases. When someone repents to you after you've pointed out their sin, very often in your heart what you'll feel is not the urge to forgive them, but the urge to hold their feet to the fire. You might have thoughts or feelings like, I'm letting them off easy. That can't be it. After all they did to me, there's no way I can just let this go. That's not justice. But friends, we have to remember, repentance is not a form of punishment. And forgiveness is not a form of justice. Uh, Jesus is giving us these commands for the sake of our own hearts and our relationships with each other. One day, God will do the just part of evening the scales. That's not what's going on with repentance and forgiveness. Now, what we're called to do is release the debt. As far as if it depends on us not to hold a grudge, to 
uproot the bitterness from our hearts, and if possible, to restore the relationship. And friends, when we do that, it has a powerful effect on the fellowship of a church. Uh, you will never find a church where people don't sin against each other. It's just not going to happen. Uh, you'll find lots of churches where people sin against each other and don't try and reconcile those relationships. Those churches are unhealthy and fall into disunity very quickly. Uh, what is more rare than it ought to be, though, is a church where people sin against each other and then, then do the hard work of reconciling their relationships, being honest about sin, repenting and forgiving and restoring the bonds of fellowship that have been frayed. Uh, we as a church have experienced God use just these things to tighten the bonds of our fellowship in our past. Uh, there was one particular service. We were in the middle of communion, and I was giving words to this effect of our obligation to forgive because we have been forgiven. And the Lord put on the heart of someone there that morning that they had been nursing bitterness against another member of our church for some offense done years in the past. The other person didn't even know it had happened. But the first brother felt so convicted that before the service was over, he went over, confessed his bitterness, asked for forgiveness, and the two of them were reconciled on the spot. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the sort of thing that Jesus is encouraging us to have happen amongst us as far as it depends on us. And we can't control the way our brother or sister will respond, but we can live up to our ob obligation to lovingly point out sin and to be ready to forgive when they repent. Jesus says we must forgive our brother. But there's a, a third command that Jesus gives. That's the most difficult of all. It's that we must keep on forgiving. Sometimes people read this passage and they try to find a loophole in it. They say, ah, yes, I agree. If my brother repents, then I must forgive him. But you see, my brother has not repented. So I can hold on to bitterness in my heart. Or maybe he did repent, but there's something that casts his repentance into doubt. I'm not satisfied by it. So I'm justified in my anger towards him. But Jesus leaves us no excuse whatsoever for continuing to nurse a grudge or for roots of bitterness to set into our heart. He gives, frankly, a ridiculous situation in order to make his point that our forgiveness must be total. In verse 4, and if he, that's your brother that's already sinned against you, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, if someone sinned against us, and then when you pointed it out, repented once to you, they did the same thing again the same day, you would start to be a little skeptical to them. Certainly by the time you got to the third time, you would start to roll your eyes at them, right? In ancient Judaism, there was the expectation that you were obligated to repeatedly forgive someone for the same offense up to three times in the same day. But Jesus says that's not far enough. Now, it, you need to go seven times. I think that's a symbolic number. Seven being the number of completion often in the Bible. Jesus is saying, 
there's no limit to the number of times you are obligated to forgive. In doing this, Jesus is removing all excuses we could think up for the reasons why we are justified in having an unforgiving and bitter heart. Now, I think more often than not, it's not the repeated offenses of someone that trips us up. That certainly is something we have to deal with. But I think it's those times when people don't repent or we've lost the opportunity even to ask them to. Sometimes there is no chance to confront someone over their sin because the person that wounded us has moved away. We have no idea where they are. Or maybe they've even died and are decades gone from this world. But brothers and sisters, we are still obligated to forgive in those scenarios. Uh, Not for their sake. I mean, they're already gone. But for the sake of your own heart and for the sake of your walk with God. Uh, Pastor John Piper labels this type of forgiveness a spirit of forgiveness. He says that we are obligated to to have a spirit of forgiveness, even for acute wrongs done against us. Because a heart that is holding on to a grudge and full of bitterness and anger is not a heart that's walking in a way worthy of the God who's called us. God tells us we must forgive so that our own souls won't be poisoned by the sin of unforgiveness. And so we can enjoy a clear conscience in our relationship with him. Now, I know that's hard to hear. Anytime I preach a message like this, I know that the Lord is stirring up things that I have no clue about. Frankly, maybe I shouldn't know about many of those things. And yet, Jesus says them for our good. He wants us to let go of all the bitter thoughts and anger that have filled our hearts for the sins committed against us in the past. So how in the world can we do that? Well, that brings us to our third and final point this morning. The indispensable prayer for faith to forgive. The indispensable prayer for faith to forgive. Frankly, it is an impossibility in ourselves to forgive in this way. Uh, The disciples understood this. The way they respond makes that obvious. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They were partially right in that prayer. Uh, The problem is not lack of enough faith, but lack of faith altogether. Uh, Jesus tells a word, uses a word picture to get that point across in verse six. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Uh, Jesus takes an impossible picture. Uh, A big, strong tree with deep, strong root system, uh, a mulberry tree. Jesus says that you could command it to be uprooted and planted and of all places in the water of the sea. No one could do that. It's impossible. And yet, according to Jesus, even a teeny, tiny, small kernel of faith is enough for God to do just such a thing. 
With just a word, that sort of faith can command it, and it could happen. Now, Jesus is not saying this uh, as if this is physically what's going to happen, or as if we have the power to create physical realities or anything like that. Now, remember the context of what we're talking about, forgiveness. Uh, Jesus is saying that even your small faith, with God's help, is enough to forgive. Sokrasov found himself on his knees crying out to God because it didn't feel like his faith was strong enough to forgive those who had hurted him so. And yet even a small kernel of faith is enough for God to do this miracle and to allow us to respond with supernatural grace and forgiveness. Uh, what Sokrasov changed in that moment, that prayer started a journey no longer did he want to have bitterness and hate in his heart. Instead, he wanted to forgive. And frankly, it took him years to achieve that. But in time, he found himself with a different mission in his heart. Uh, he wanted to go and help those people. Even the very men that had murdered his family. So he went into training to be a missionary. And after years... The Lord gave him the ability to go back to his village. Uh, when he arrived back, he told the people there who he was looking for. Turned out two of the men were still living there. When he told the other villagers his plan to go and confront them, they told him, you're crazy. Why would you want to go talk to them? But he responded, I'm an ambassador of Jesus. And I'm here to forgive them. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is what the Lord calls each and every one of us to do, whether we ever have the opportunity to speak to the people who harmed us or not, to forgive as we have been forgiven. Uh, that's not possible in ourselves. We don't have the resources in our hearts. No, it requires an act of faith. And where can you find even a small kernel of faith so powerful of that? But in the gospel of Jesus itself. See, in the gospel of Jesus, we see all we need and find all we need so that we would have faith to forgive. When our hearts cry out for justice, knowing how wrongly we've been hurt, and we feel ourselves wanting blood, we look to the cross of Jesus, and we see that we've already gotten our blood in the Son of God who is slain for us. When our hearts lack mercy, and we know that we don't have what it takes to be able to forgive. Uh, we look to the mercy of Jesus who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do to those who are killing them. Uh, when we feel we don't have enough faith or the faith that there isn't strong enough, even though we know we must forgive, we just don't have the courage to. We look to Christ resurrected from the dead. and We know all things are possible with God for those who have even a small kernel of faith. So my dear brothers and sisters, I promise you I don't know even the half of the hurts that you've experienced. I don't know the people who have done you wrong. I don't know the pain and traumas you've experienced. But I do know this, Christ calls you in faith to forgive with God's help to not let the roots of bitterness keep growing down deeper and deeper. 
but by the power of the Holy Spirit to uproot them and let something else take hold in your heart, the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Sokrasa, in faith, walked into that village. And he said in that moment, his emotions ran so hot that his face became flush and he felt himself tingling all over, but God granted him the grace he needed. He found two of the men that were a part of that death squad and he gave them two gifts, a sash, which represents friendship in their culture, and a Bible. And then he told them a message. He said, I'm here as an ambassador of Jesus Christ to forgive you. One of the men started weeping bitterly and ran out of the room, wouldn't talk with him. But the other man was cut to the heart. He said to him, I've wronged you. Would you please forgive me? And the miracle of God, Sokrasa forgave him and embraced him. And he became a brother in Christ. Brothers and sisters, no matter what hurts you've experienced, God can use your small faith to forgive. Would you let him? Let's pray. Jesus, we ask your help. We know that we do not have within us, in ourselves, the resources to forgive as we have been forgiven. And yet we trust your word is true. That on the cross you paid for each and every one of our sins. And you even bought for us the power needed so that we could forgive by faith with your help. Uh, Jesus, thank you for giving us a reminder of how costly that transaction was as you hung and died for sinners like us. Uh, thank you for giving us this built-in reminder of it as we come to the Lord's table so that we would never forget that there is grace and mercy for all types of sinners. Oh, Jesus, would you help guard us in our fellowship this morning, knowing how easy it is for us to ignore the sins committed against us and even to grow bitter? Uh, would you turn us into the sort of church that out of love points out when we stray and is quick and ready to forgive and restore? Uh, Jesus, we also pray that as we approach the table, that you would remind us of our many sins, even since we've become Christians. Uh, would you lead us to quickly repent of them before you so that our walk can be full of joy, knowing your love and the blessing of a clear conscience. So Jesus, prepare our hearts now as we take of the table. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen.